Welcome home. You will hear from voices of people you might think you know, listening to these voices that have spent decades behind bars, waiting for their opportunity to come home, will confound your mind. With cameras rolling, we meet them at the intersection of their newfound freedom and a dark past. You'll hear the sound of regret from a soul of someone who has been released from prison and is now fighting to fit back into a society that once forgot they existed. Welcome to Welcome Home. My name is Steve. I'm out of uh, East Los Angeles, born and raised in Bow Heights, February 12, 1968. I grew up in a good family. We didn't have much. You know, we struggled growing up, moving from place to place, not having, you know, a lot. But my stepdad did what he could for us. I don't know who my father was. I always say that um, I was a product of a misfortune that happened to my mother when she was younger, you know, and I came out of that misfortune. You know, there was times in my life where I was told I was a mistake, that I shouldn't have been born. And that's how I grew up. It wasn't easy for me growing up. You know, I, I grew up, I have an older sister that since passed away from COVID. Um, I got a younger sister, younger than me, and it was just the three of us. We all had different fathers. And then my stepdad came into the picture when I was three. He gave my mom five more kids after us. There was times when, you know, there was Christmases or holidays where we were, you know, like if he couldn't provide for one, he wouldn't give none of us nothing. My name is Robbie Hall. I was born in Haiti, Missouri. I came out here when I was one year old to California, living in South Central LA. They call me Peaches from a baby, my father nicknamed me. Well, my childhood was a tragedy for me. Coming up in South Central and living with a father that was military was very traumatizing for me. I had an alcoholic mother and my father, he didn't use drugs or drink, but I had an alcoholic mother that was very abusive and um, she's the woman that introduced me to drugs and alcohol. For some reason, I was the only hall in the rest of my brothers and sisters, which is eight of them, they're parties. So when my father left her, I was a different person to her. She didn't want to be, she didn't want me anymore, but my father left to have a better life due to her drugs and alcohol. I had to fend for myself as a young child. I was kidnapped at the age of five years old from my school teacher because I was telling her about the trauma that was going on in my house. When she kidnapped me, she kept me for five and a half years. And I was a smart child enough to tell the security guard at the doctor that she wasn't my mother and that I wanted my mother. He listened to me and took me into custody and questioned the lady and they cuffed her and took her into custody because I knew my address, my phone number. My mother taught us all of that at, at a very young age, which was a good thing for me. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been with her today. My mother's deceased now, but she was the lady that feared me that I had most of my trauma from, from her and my cousin, Larry Turner, which um, he had been in and out of prison for rape and molestation and he had been in and out. When I came back from being kidnapped from my school teacher, my cousin, he molested me and I told my mother, my mother told me to get the hell out of his face, that he's a grown adult, he don't want me. By the time I was 12 years old, I already had it figured out that I had to have many masks in order to survive her, her abuse. So if I act like her 
or I did the things that she wanted me to do, then I was the best child in the house. She sent me to get her alcohol, her drugs. By the time I was 14 and a half, I had my first child because I latched on to people that were out in the streets for safety. Uh, they didn't know the trauma that I was ex experiencing at home because at home, you see and you don't see, you hear and you don't hear. It was a lot of that going on in here. But I was smart enough to remove myself. When my father came around, everything was okay. But when he left, all hell breaks loose. Um, I was shot by my mother and I was told to say that a bullet shot me. I was, she had a wreck, she was drunk, and I went through the windshield of the car, left a big scar on my left arm. No matter what I did, it was never good enough for her. So what was good for me is to go out to where my friends was. My friends wasn't really my friends because they was gang affiliated, but I ended up getting into a gang because those, the peoples that didn't allow me to be hurt, they always protected me, they fed me, they clothed me, they made me go to school. I dropped out of school after I got pregnant at the age of 14 and a half years old. Um, I returned back to continuation because I wanted to complete school. Today I now have 26 vocations, um, two AA degrees and a master's um, because I chose to live a better life than my mother. I don't blame my mother for who I am. My neighborhood is typical main neighborhood in East LA, gang infested, drug infested. Being from that area, being from the neighborhood, like you had to be a part of that neighborhood growing up. I joined a gang at a very young age. I had to prove myself, you know, I grew up kind of fast, you know, and became part of a neighborhood right here across um, the river called White Fence, one of the oldest gangs in Los Angeles. At the same time that I was gang banging, I was doing drugs, you know. Started off drinking, I started off smoking weed and it led to harder drugs. At the age of 15, I tried heroin for the first time. I didn't like it. But the next day I wanted some more. Committed a lot of crimes, you know, a lot of a lot of gang banging, a lot of drive-bys, a lot of assaults, a lot of robberies. Um, I was heavily involved in my gang for a very long time. In and out of juvenile halls at the age of 11, 12. For me, my family wasn't my family no more after a certain age, you know. My family became the streets, my family became the neighborhood. My life of crime started, my life gang banging was really, was in the 80s early 80s, you know, uh, my first arrest was in a drug bus in high school. They had an undercover cop that was like a, like a student and I had her for second period. And um, I was selling her drugs, you know, not knowing that she was a cop all the time. I left East Los Angeles and I went to Hollywood area. I was out there in Hollywood running around for a long time um, off of Sunset and Western, which is uh, another part of my neighborhood. You know, it's West Side White Fence. And that's where a lot of my stuff was going on over there. Living with my mother was like living in a nightmare. I, I find myself often having ways like her, like not wanting to be bothered, fussing, doing little things, but I catch myself. And when I catch myself, it's just almost like reliving a life that she endured on me. I don't blame my mother today because I'm a grown woman. I just feel like something happened to her and for her to do that. It wasn't just my father. It didn't just start right there because that same um, lifestyle that she treated me, she treated my deceased sister, Donna's children, the same way after I went to prison because we talk right now today. 
and the same person that molested me molested my niece. Um, he was in prison. I had him locked up from prison, reached out to some attorneys about what he was doing to her, and I had him locked up. He's not alive today. He's deceased. He got murdered in prison. He was locked up for that last time for molestation and rape. I abused women for a long time. You know, uh, it was about what you could do for me, not what I could do for you. The cops used to call me the penniless pimp with the underpaid hookers. Um, because all I was doing is just pimping just to stay high, you know, to have a place to stay. Things started happening, but the use of drugs started progressing more in my life, you know, and I started pulling away from a lot of different things and I started um, robbing connections. In 1993, I tried to hit a connection and I got shot. I got shot seven times. I got shot twice in the stomach and four in the groin area. I didn't go to the hospital right away. I went to my neighborhood and I, all I told my homeboys was, give me a bottle of Pepsi, a milk crate where I could sit down and give me some dope. You know, if I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die right here in my neighborhood. I passed out, I woke up in the hospital, the Kaiser Hospital in Hollywood. I got a scar from my chest all the way to my groin area. And the bullet wounds are all in my groin, uh, my legs, my groin. I actually got a violation for getting shot because I came in contact with, a, with ammunition, a bullet. I got 12 months for being a victim of a shooting. They knew what had took place. That's why I got arrested while I was at the hospital. I went to prison, and when I got out of prison, I went straight back to the streets again, straight to Hollywood. When I got off the Greyhound bus right here on 7th Street, I made a U-turn, went right back to Hollywood. You know, and continued, picked up where I left off at. And that was my MO, man, like I picked up where I left off at, you know, and it doesn't work like that. Right here at the Cecil Hotel, like that was part of my story. It's been part of my story. Um, I ran in and out of those rooms of every apartment, every apartment in the Cecil Hotel doing heroin. Like it was a world in its own, you know, like everything was there that you can want in there, whether it be women, drugs, um, alcohol, everything was there. Um, I didn't need to leave that place at all. What led me to my incarceration, I was working at the county building on 103rd and Central. I got off from work, it was 5.30, I was standing on a bus stop, I didn't drive to work that day. And when I bent over to reach into my purse, a man grabbed me from behind. He put a rope around my neck and he put a gun up to my head. He took me in the alley and he raped me. <sighs> Getting away from him was hard, very hard. I ran all around screaming and hollering, asking for help. I ran into the liquor store. He put me out the liquor store because he know me from being a gang member from around there and how rowdy we were. After running into a dead end street, I had no other way to go. I had no weapon on me or nothing. He tried to stab me and he tripped and fell. And when he fell, he tried to pull me down because I was kicking him. He tried to pull me down and when I was falling down, I seen a knife on the side and I stabbed him one time, fighting him, not meaning to stab him, but I was trying to get him off of me, not thinking that it would lead to his death. Today, I'm not proud of it. I forgive him for what he's done because I don't know what his trauma cause was to do that. But I was sentenced to 15 to life. I served a total of 36 and a half years in prison because there was no justice in my case. 1995, they were building a case on me and I didn't know. They piled a lot of robberies on me that I didn't do. I was finally arrested for two counts of attempted murder and 17 counts of armed robbery. 
I fought him, I beat him. I still ended up with a life sentence. The judge told me, take a look at the streets one more time on your way back to the county because it'll be the last time you'll ever see the streets again. I remember being in receiving and everybody was nice to me, introducing themselves. They were giving me stuff because I, I just was a quiet person. So they didn't know what was going on inside of me because I never talked to anyone about it. I didn't clearly understand what was going on with me because I had trauma and I couldn't address what I was feeling inside, so I was shut down. I felt safe because I'd no longer seen those peoples, but I didn't know the impact of prison. During my incarceration, I had many of fights because I was angry. I didn't understand why they wouldn't let me go. I tried to talk until I just got tired of feeling the way I was, and so I was referred to mental health, and I told them what happened to me. And as I was in there, they tried all kind of medication. It didn't work because I don't have a mental problem. It was trauma and P uh, PTSD and anxiety, which I'm diagnosed with today. I take meds as needed. But during my incarceration, I utilized my time thinking about not being the same person that I walked in there as. But it came to a point where I really needed to fight for my life of getting out of there. So I went to mental health and I talked to them about my issues um, and doing my groups and stuff. I got a lot of help because I wasn't afraid. I, I was ashamed, I was embarrassed to talk about the family trauma and the issues and what happened to me. I was afraid to admit that I was raped. So that, that holding me back from, from healing. Once I opened up to my groups and started talking to different peoples, then it opened up my case. But during my incarceration, I completed a total of 26 vocations. I have two AA degrees and I just finished my master's from Feather Rivers. When I left prison, I only had 12 more credits. So I just finished them about a month ago. So I'm working on my bachelor's now. My first night was like all other nights. I asked God to help me get out of this one, you know? like I always do, you know, and that's what we do when we go to prison, man. I, I promise if you let me out of this one, I promise, man, I'll do good. It was difficult because knowing that I knew I wasn't gonna get out no more. Um, I knew that I was gonna be in prison for the rest of my life. My time in prison wasn't, it wasn't a fun ride. Um, I used heroin most of the time that I was locked up. I committed a lot of crimes while I was in prison. I caught a case while I was in prison. My family was there every, every step of the way, you know, and, and a lot of the times my brothers and sisters went without. So mom could put a package together and send me a package. I had to do some soul searching and be honest with my family about uh, what I was doing in prison, you know, and where that money was going to. A lot of the times that my family sent me money to prison, it went to the dope man. The packages that I received in prison went to the dope man. At the time, I really didn't care. I didn't even care about myself. I spent a lot of time in solitary confinement, the shoe, uh, in and out of the shoe. When I was in receiving, they just gave me a number and a letter and I, I didn't know what it was. My identification number is W24567. They didn't explain, they just said, this is the number that we're giving you so that we don't know who you are. It was horrible, but I ate what I wanted to, to eat and I didn't eat what I didn't want because I was way smaller than this when I went to prison. It's just basically a bunch of mess. But when I first went, we had some good cooks. 
But during the middle of my time, like 15 to 16 years, they no longer had the same cooks. They was just, I guess, hiring whoever there. But I mainly survived off of canteen where you can buy canned foods and vegetables. You could buy everything there. You could order food in your quarterly packages um, there. And my family supported me. My mother, sister did. Once my kids got grown, they started supporting me too. I had basically lost hope. After two decades, I lost hope. When three decades came, I seen people leaving and I had a hard time with the board of prison term because they was throwing words at me that I couldn't identify with. And they never told me what they wanted until my site told me that I had six witnesses that never took the witness stand to ask me why. That's when I started going back at the board with those. They knew it was there all the time. Women of color is a money tree. That's what they see me as. They never investigated it. They never looked at it and they kept trying to make me say what they wanted me to say and I wouldn't. So basically it was, if you don't come in here and say what I say, then you're not going anywhere. And that's how they did it until the last commissioner seen it and said it was no justice in my case that if they would have put the six witnesses on the witness stand or even looked at that, took a look at it, that I would have been released from prison, that I shouldn't have never done the time because it was no justice. I did a good thing because I was in church. That's what really held me up and my family. Um, they wasn't supporting me like that. So I wrote them off and said, forget the real world. It's about me in here now, I gotta survive. So I start cutting people off, not writing them, not talking to them on the phones. And um, I focused on my education because I didn't want to come out the same way that I went in. So I started focusing on goals. And every time I completed a goal, what I learned that I was smarter than what I had put myself because I had low self-esteem, a lot of character defects that needed to, to be addressed. 2014, December 31st, I got tired of being in prison. Um, I got tired of living the life that I was. Didn't know if I was ever gonna come home again. And I tried to take my own life. Um, I swallowed about 120 pills. Um, I swallowed a gram of heroin and I shot some dope. Um, I wrote a letter to everybody in my family, but I just wanted to die on my terms. I didn't want to die in prison. I didn't want to die an old man. Um, and I try to take my life. Fortunately, you know, with the blessing of God, man, I, I pulled through. Uh, two weeks later, the day that I was being released from the hospital, I had a stroke. TIA, transient ischemic attack, but I was fully paralyzed from the neck down. I had to learn how to walk, talk, eat. I had to learn everything over again. And all this time, my family didn't know where I was. Every time they would call the prison, the prison would tell them, he's out to medical, he's out to medical. Not knowing that I couldn't walk, I couldn't talk. After learning all those things over again, I was able to finally write a letter to my family and let them know what had happened, what I had did. Even after that, I still continued shooting heroin when I came back to the prison. My mom had went to visit me one time and uh, she got there about 8.30. I think it was 8.30 that she got there and they called me for the visit. But I was so sick from the heroin that I wasn't able to go out there to the visit. Instead, I went out to the yard trying to look 
for some heroin so I can get well, just so I can be out there in the visit with her. And I wasn't able to go out there until like two o'clock in the afternoon. She spent the whole day in the visiting room waiting for me to go out there. And when I finally did go out there, you know, I expected her to, I expected her to be bad. I expected her to be upset and she wasn't. She just said, you look good. You look good, mijo. You know, I'm proud of you, man. Um, I pray every day that God, that God lets me see you home one more time before I pass away. That was the moment that like, I like, it got to me because the mother's love, no matter what you do, um, it's never gonna like, it never dies. No matter what we do, we could do no wrong in our mother's eyes. The commissioners was crying and I was wondering why these two men were crying. It was an African man and a, um, it was a white man and he sat down before me and um, he said, I don't, he said, I don't know if you know this, but I'm gonna tell you this because you came in as a youth defender. Your MEPD was 1995, and now your elderly is as of this year. We no longer feel that you should do more time, but I wanna make sure that the government knows that it was no justice in your case, that you were wrongly sentenced and to see if we can get your case expunged. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna send this to the governor and we're gonna to try to get you out of prison. Before 120 days, I paroled in 42 days. I normally do eight hours at the board, just them drilling me over and over, messing with me, and me messing with them back, because I even had to build up a character for them too. I just got tired of answering date questions that didn't make sense to me. I didn't have to answer all of that this time. And I just feel like that was a God thing because of I, I wasn't in the board no longer than 30 minutes. And it was basically about no justice in my case. They didn't, he didn't want to talk about the case. What he asked me was three questions. Did I kill him? I said, yes. He said, how do you feel about that? And he said, I'm gonna answer it for you. He said, you don't have you smiling and you don't have that anger look or nothing that the board is identifying that you got. Um, he said, um, I can see where you were running around trying to get some help and you didn't have no help. Um, he said, but I'm not here to judge you today. He said, and I got one more question to ask you. And I said, yes. He said, what do you want to parole at? And I said, LA. He said, well, congratulations. We're going to get you to transition because we don't want you out in the streets because you need to transition over. You can't make it out there with all these uh, decades that passed by. Um, he said, and I'm so sorry that this happened to you, but I'll make sure that you get compensated and I'll make sure that someone hears your story, which it did. I'm an advocate today, African-American women that are locked up because I know a lot of them. So, so far, I've helped three of them to be heard. So they're in courts now. When I got released from prison, um, see my family there, my brothers and my sisters, uh, my stepdad in the parking lot waiting for me, finally got it that I was coming home. You know, um, it was emotional because when I went to prison, my brothers were in high school and now they're grown men. They got families, they're educated. My sister's a school teacher. Um, I missed out on their lives. I wasn't able to see my mother because I went to a program. They worked it out for me where I didn't go to transition. I went to a treatment program. I got the help that I needed. And I think it was the best decision I ever made because today I'm three years clean.
I'm three years out of prison and three years clean. Um, I still wasn't able to see my mother because she lived out of state, but it was eating me up that I was only able to talk to my mom through, through FaceTime. And I told the parole officer, man, if you don't let me go see my mom out of state, I'm gonna leave this house and I gotta see my mom by all costs, you know, even if it took me back to prison. Mother's Day of 2019, I got that wish, you know, my parole officer, the program that I work for, Amity Foundation, helped me go visit my mom in um, Las Vegas. I got to see her for Mother's Day and all she wanted to do was lay with me as if I was a kid, wake up in her arms on Mother's Day morning. Not knowing that it'd be the last time I'd ever see my mother. I went back to the home. A couple weeks later, um, I see my brothers and my sisters in the back in the backyard of the home that I was in in San Pedro, and um, I knew what had happened. But her last words to me before I left her side was, "You're gonna be okay. I know it." But as an addict, the first thing that came to mind, I wanted to run away from my shit. I wanted to go get loaded. I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't go back out there to the streets again. And for a long time, like, I fought with God, like I fought with him. Why did you take my mother from me? Like we made so many plans. We made so much plans. She knew she was ready to go. She was tired, she was sick. And um, all she prayed for, somebody finally told me, all your mother prayed for was to see you home one more time. And that prayer was answered, you came home again. I used to always, um, call my mother for my birthday so she gave me happy birthday. I guess she asked my sister to record her singing me happy birthday because she didn't know if she will ever be able to sing me happy birthday again because she knew she was getting sick. I invited my family and some friends of mine to give me a cake for being a year clean, a year sober. After they sang me happy birthday, my brother Sal um, pulled a picture out and said someone else wants to sing them happy birthday. And this was the court, this is the recording that they had for me. Every year that I take a cake clean, I take that picture with me. So my mom can see me happy birthday. And for the rest of my life, I'll have that picture. I'll have that recording of my mother singing me happy birthday on my birthday. Whether it be my, what we call natal birthday or my clean and sober birthday. My clean and sober birthday is February the 2nd, 2019, which is also my release date because that was the day that I decided to get clean. Decided that I, I would not do drugs again. And I haven't. I just uh, celebrated three years out of prison, three years clean. I'm in transition with a lot of lovable people. It's very hard for me. Um, because I'm traumatized, like, I don't know society like that. Every day that I'm out there, I fear what can happen to me. I don't go out by myself anymore. I try, and it's just this thing like I'm paranoid, like I'm looking behind me all the time, and um, I want to press forward, and I have people with me all the time, but I want to go out by myself. I want to do it, but once I try it, I go out to the nail shop or to get my feet done or something. I turn around too fast. You know, I've tried it and I ended up calling for them to um, come and get me because I'm scared. 
I'm in a community where they parole a lot of pedophiles and stuff at. I'm very nice to men when they speak to me because they always speak and stuff, but I don't, um, I don't stop. I speak, I smile, and anybody, it's not their fault. Everywhere I went with New Way of Life, like going on an airplane, I never flew. I never been on a Greyhound. I never been to the Lakers game. Everywhere that I, everything's been new for me. Everything's been new for me. And I love it. I love it. I smile. I'm happy. I praise dance for New Way of Life like I did in prison. Me as a person, I'm very lovable. I'm happy. It, it's just this PTSD, even with the medication um, that he gives me. Like, I be scared I won't stay in that house by myself because it's a six-bedroom house. It's just things that I won't do. But I know I am going to do it eventually because I'm, I'm, I'm very strong. Don't get me wrong. I'm a very strong person. I do know how to protect myself. But I fear of going back to prison and stuff like that, which I shouldn't because God has protected me and he didn't bring me out here for that. So I trust him. I go to church. I have lots of friends that loves me. They come pick me up. They take me different places. Um, my therapist take me places and she walks behind me and that, I, I don't like people behind me, but I do it because I need to get used to that. Today, I surround myself with uh, people that have been in the Cardinals Anonymous clean, sober over 25, 30 years. I always say that Narcotics Anonymous saved my life. It was hard for me coming home. I had to learn how to be a brother again. I had to learn how to be an uncle. I had to learn how to be a son. I had to learn how to be just me over again. Being a lifer, coming home from prison after 25 plus years, it's not easy. Um, I didn't have no job history, uh, never worked in my life, never had an ID, never had a driver's license, never had to pay bills. Um, because of the life that I led. I knew that I couldn't dishonor her, man. Like me going back to the streets and getting loaded and going back to what I know. But that's the problem with us is that we run from our problems. You know, like we run away from shit, but we're still gonna have that fucking problem when we come back. And it, it took a lot of soul searching, it took a lot of talking to different people that have been in my situation to understand that. And today, the way I live my life today, I live for her, you know. Some people say she's walking with you and I just, talked to uh, someone and I just said, you know, it's not the same. It's not the same, my mom being, not being there with me, seeing my accomplishments, you know. Um, we say everything that we're gonna do out there, you know, when we come home, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. I've been doing everything that I said I was gonna do. My first meal was um, from Chili's. When I was in prison, I always wanted to eat. I always seen this commercial and they used to always talk about, I want my baby back, baby back, baby back ribs. And I went to Chili's, man, to get that baby back rib. One of the nurses in prison has said, I have to go to In-N-Out and ask for the secret menu. She said, you have to order the four by four animal style fries and a strawberry shake. The lady was asking me for my order and I was trying to be secretive. And I said, I want to eat from the secret menu. And she said, I can't hear you, you gotta speak up louder. And I said, well, I'm not trying to let everybody know, but I want to eat from the secret menu. Um, animal style fries, and she said, you been away for a while, and they gave me the animal style fries and the four by four. God damn, that was a meal. That was like a week's worth of meal. When I came home, like I, I didn't know that there was gonna be um, 
like a welcome home party for me. So when I came home, you know, it, it was a trip because I walked into a house with a lot of family members, a lot of kids, kids that I don't even know, my brother's kids, you know, my sister's kids, you know, um, a lot of nieces and nephews that I didn't know. They were all asking, like, who, who is he? Who is he? You know, they had a bunch of food, man. They ate some tacos and whatnot. But I had to leave them there because I had to be at the home three hours after I paroled from prison. So I left my family there. A lot of things were new when I came home. You know, um, there was no Staples Center. The Twin Towers County Jail was not there. Um, there was no trains. There was no red lines, blue lines, green lines, yellow lines, whatever. There was none of that. It was RTD, rough, tough, and dangerous. Downtown wasn't the way it was be before. Now you see all these outdoor restaurants. You see people walking dogs, um, stuff like that. You still have the homeless population, but everything's different today. I've been experiencing a lot of firsts in my life. Today, uh, I work for Amity Foundation and we're a transition housing for lifers. We don't call ourselves counselors, we call ourselves advocates. And we advocate for the guy that's coming home from prison after doing life sentences. A lot of the guys that are there in the house are guys that I did time in prison with. My crimey came through that house. One of my cellmates came through that house. And all these guys are doing good today in the community right now. You know, they're all giving back. Somebody asked me, when will you know that you're giving back enough? Because I give back every day. I told him I'll be giving back for the rest of my life because I took so much. The robberies, the burglaries, the crime, and my drug addiction, you know, like, I took so much. Today I'm blessed behind, beyond my wildest dreams. I don't make much at work, but I love what I do. And they say that if you love what you do, you don't have to work a day in your life. You know, when somebody walks away from the home and decides to do their own, you know, like, I take that shit personal. Like, what did I do wrong? Or what did I not tell him? Or what did he not get from me? And I carry that shit on my shoulders. Um, but my boss told me, if 99 people fail and what succeeded, we did our job. And I believe that every person coming home after doing either a life sentence or long-term needs transition to become productive members of society. You just can't go home and lay on somebody's couch because that welcome's gonna wear out. Without Narcotics Anonymous, I wouldn't be able to do what I do today. Without Narcotics Anonymous, I wouldn't be sitting with you here today. Um, I met so many people in Narcotics Anonymous that, you know, I've built some network. On my free time, I got people calling me up, asking me for treatment programs, um, for shelters for women with children um, involved in domestic violence. Sometimes I forget about myself and I have to find that balance, but I love what I do. I was sharing with someone just earlier about how difficult it is for us to come home after being a life sentence, especially if you're in a relationship. If you're in a relationship in prison, it's not actually a relationship because the only thing that you're doing is you're getting visits, you're writing letters, you're having those phone calls. Your other half is taking care of you while you're in prison. It's all about you, not about her. Then you come home and the shit gets physical. Like you have to learn how to, like you're gonna learn how to be her other half. You're gonna learn her pet peeves. You're gonna have to learn um, how she lives, her likes and dislikes. And then she starts going wrong. We lived a certain way for so long. Like I was washing my socks, boxers, and, and t-shirts and tank tops 
in my shower every time I shower for a long time. Uh, my name is Jesus Flores and I am Steve's brother. Grew up in Boyle Heights and and I also grew up in the city of Cudahy. My brother was involved in gangs, so we weren't really hanging with him. He was either in gangs or in prison. There wasn't no um, big brother to be around. The only thing I can remember is when he was a boxer, he was doing boxing at um, Hollenbeck Youth Center. Those are some good memories I've had of my brother. That was rough, and I wish I had my brother with me, but um, he was too busy being in gangs or locked up. The life he chose back then, we went uh, at least once a year to visit, him. to visit him. Yeah, even though sometimes we drove for hours and it was just on a glass window for an hour or so, but it was still special for her. It was good to see it, uh, her face every time we'd, we'd go visit him. She really wanted to go with us to go pick him up when he got out, but she was too sick. We're calling her on the way and telling her everything that's going on. So she kind of like she's there. I think she waited till, till he got out before she, she passed away. I think she was waiting for that. You know, he's been in and out of prison for a long time. And when he got out this last time, I thought it was going to be one of those other times where he would be out for a week, a month, two months and go back in. And that has to be the case. He went through a lot of obstacles to get where he's at now. And now he's sharing his story and helping others. Definitely um, changing not only his life, but others. I just laugh about it and keep going because I know that um, I'm free. And that's what, you know, because I didn't have a voice when I went to that, to prison. I didn't have a voice, but I have a voice now because I'm an advocate and I'm always talking. I'm always behind cameras. I'm always on stage. I'm an advocate for CCWP, Power Indignant. A lots of people has reached out to me in a loving way. I'm supported by love. It's just the PTSD that kicks in. I didn't have a voice, but I do now. My name is Ronnie's Kendall. Miss Peaches is Robbie Hall. One of my old roommates. When I first met Peaches, she was a church, um, into the church in the church choir. And I was um, kind of like moving around the prison, a little strange, and she kind of like took to me. So she was always good ever since I met her. She's been good to me. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have, I mean, I've never seen nobody have a lot of conflict with her. She was trying to figure out a way to get out of prison, you know. She had a life sentence, so I was, I had came in with finishing off my 15 year sentence and, you know, you just never understand their struggle. So I just met her where she was at and we became good friends. I was in prison for 15 years, Chowchilla and VSPW. After doing the 15 years, I went back less than two months later with a five year sentence. So. You know, this time I'm for sure that I'm done, but I still carry my ID card so I don't forget where I come from or where, I, where I've been that I don't want to go back to. She has um, tackled a lot of her tasks and she's getting to where she want to be. Um, she's waiting on housing and she's doing real good. The church loves her and we go to the same church and she's doing really good. 
I see her succeeding. I see her success because she tries hard to be successful at what she does. And I see that she will succeed. Very proud. I was bullied when I was a kid. I used to come home crying because I used to get beat up at school sometimes. My stepdad would take me back to where the guys that beat me up and I would be all happy like he's gonna defend me, you know? But all he would do is tell, tell them guys to beat me up again so I can learn how to fight, you know, learn how to be a man. He always says that he made a mistake by putting me in boxing because now, you know, I couldn't stop fighting no more. My dad tried everything to put me in uh, karate, baseball, basketball, football, but boxing was my passion because I love to fight. When I was boxing, I came out of the Spanish newspaper, La Opinion. The newspaper clipping that, that I have, you know, it said that, you know, that I trained with enthusiasm to one day be another Lupe Pintor, a Salvador Sanchez and whatnot. You know, I was boxing right here at the Olympic Auditorium, the Olympic gym. I boxed for a few years. I boxed in a few tournaments, but the gangs pulled me away from it. And that's the thing that I really wanted to do. I wanted to be a boxer. And I really wish that I would have followed in that path, you know, and not the path of the streets. A lot of people say they make the mistake because they say I have a lot of family support. But my answer to that is, what do you have? You might have a lot of family support, but what do you have? You don't have nothing but your prison ID and $200 they gave you at the gate. And today the way life works, it's not gonna get you nowhere. It's not even gonna get you to tomorrow. That's why I believe that transition is the best thing for someone coming home from doing a long term. There's a lot of programs now that we have in prison to help these lifers come home but there needs to be more program in place when we get home to help us through our transition. Just before I came home, there was these two youngsters that had just barely started doing their life sentences. And I took them around the yard and we went around the track three times. Those are the benches where you hang out at. That's the dirt where they play soccer, the basketball courts. And we went around the track, do the same thing. And one of the guys said, hey man, where are you getting at? That's what I've been seeing for the last 25 plus years. I wanted them to see what they have to look forward to if they don't try to do something differently. I like to go to work on my days off. I get the new guys that um, are just coming home that haven't been out. I get them in the van and I'll take them places. I'll take them to the mountains. I'll take them to, they like going to San Pedro, to the cliffs. And we climb down the cliffs and it's like, for them, they think it's just an outing. You know, some of them have, haven't seen the ocean in over 20, 30 years. But it's also a ceremony that I perform with them. It's called a letting go ceremony. We can't fix what we broke, but life allows us to do things differently today. The other day we performed, uh, we did a, a workshop on Mother's Day. And I was able to share with my guys, the new guys, about my mother passing, me having the opportunity to see her one more time before she passed. And it opened the door for some of these guys to talk about them losing their mothers while they were incarcerated, how they dealt with it. And a lot of them dealt with it through violence. Today, my passion is helping others that were in my situation, um, helping others come home from prison. That's my passion today. Don't judge me for what I wear, judge me for what I do today. And today, I know that I've changed a lot of lives since I've been home from prison, and I'm grateful for that.